Good evening. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening again. You are listening to Radio Islam at WCEV 1450 AM Chicago. And I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. Radio Islam is a live call-in radio program airing every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central. And we reach the world by streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. You can also log on to www.radioislam.com to check out guest bios, programming, previous shows, articles, and more. Now, if you haven't done so already, please follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at the same handle, at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. If you'd like to chime in to tonight's discussion, make a point, or ask a question if you're on Facebook, go to our Facebook page, Radio Islam. Uh, there's already a post up. Go ahead and just go ahead and uh, write right there, and we'll see it during the uh, broadcast and get your, con- your question answered and put into the conversation. For the first portion, you will be able to give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. Now, those who are on Twitter, I think I said this already, but at Radio Islam USA, you can tweet us at Radio Islam. All right, we're looking forward to hearing from you. So we hope it's been a, a good weekend for you. Happy Monday. Hope that your work week is off to a good start. Uh, That said, we know the news cycle doesn't sleep. Uh, Life keeps going in between Friday and Monday. So a lot has happened between Friday when we last talked and today. Uh, Since then, uh, there's been been quite a few things, uh, one of which I want to bring up, uh, and I should tell you that one of the things we hope to talk about this evening is the misrepresentation of justice or the denial of justice. And it seems sometimes like we're in two different Americas or we're watching two different news feeds, uh, looking at the reactions that people have to things that are going on. So we know uh, within St. Louis there have been protests at the acquittal of the former police officer for the killing of a uh, a young black man, a motorist. Um, And those protests uh, have continued um, daily. So, but this speaks to a larger issue. This is not an isolated incident. Um, But we're actually going to talk a little bit more about that in our second half with our scheduled guest, uh, Sister Aisha Mustafa, who's the editor of the Muslim Journal. But right now, let's just look at some of the things that have happened in the news since we last had a chance to talk. So, over the weekend, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Police arrested Kenneth Gleason, 23, on numerous counts of drug possession Saturday night, but say they don't have enough to to charge him with what? With two killings. Slangs that Baton Rouge Police Sergeant Lajean McKinney said Sunday could possibly be racially motivated. So he said that shell casings from each killing matched and a car belonging to Gleason fit the description of the vehicle police were looking for. He also said police have collected other circumstantial evidence. 
So there was a killing. Uh, this young 23-year-old, uh, this individual happens to be white. And the city began a citywide manhunt Friday looking for a gunman believed to have killed two pedestrians in apparently random shootings. Uh, the two shootings were linked through ballistic testing. So they made this their top priority. And uh, after the second shooting took place, uh, killing 49-year-old Donald Smart, who was found lying dead in the road from multiple gunshot wounds, Smart had been walking to his job of 30 years, according to police, when he was killed. So as of this moment, or as of this reporting, a bond had not been set, a bond hearing had not been set for Gleason as of 11 a.m. Uh, Sunday. So that's, that's, that is one that is one issue that is, uh, or one incident that has taken place. And it should be troubling. It should trouble anyone who hears this. Because this speaks to when you have one person raise up, uh, we understand that it's not just about the, the actions of one person. There's, there's, a, there's a community, there are people that, that helped to form this type of thinking. Or there are people that knew about the type of thinking that he had. So we never look at these things in isolation. Now, also last week, two more nooses were found in Brooklyn, New York. And this, of course, raises concerns about safety. I mean, the noose has been a sign of terror for African Americans uh, throughout the history of America. Um, I think we've mentioned, you know, the, the scholar, uh, journalist, Ida B. Wells, who, who did extensive research and chronicled over 3,000 lynchings um, of African Americans. That, uh, that memory is still very fresh and very raw for, for many, especially of uh, those who are seniors because they, they, have, they grew up through those times. So the first noose, it was found Monday, hanging from a tree next to the Brooklyn Museum in a racially diverse but rapidly gentrifying Crown Heights section of the New York City borough. And the second was found Thursday outside a library in the racially diverse um, but also gentrifying uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant area. So a custodian found the six-foot white rope, removed it, and gave it to security. This is according to police. So what does this say about where we are in America today? Uh, it says that we should never underestimate the impact. We should never underestimate the impact of an act of kindness or hatred. Now, some might want to minimize this, once again, as a localized event. After all, what's two, what's two nooses in a city of 2.6 million? Uh, does it merit concern? Does it? A absolutely. In my opinion, absolutely it does. Because if there's anything we've learned from our Jewish brothers and sisters is that you must have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to confronting acts of hate and aggression. Because history bears witness to what happens when these actions go unchecked. It didn't just come out of, out of the blue. The, the Holocaust uh, did not just happen. The genocide uh, did not just happen. 
As a matter of fact, when we look around the world, there have always been markers to indicate that extreme acts or extreme atrocities were on the verge of taking place, whether it be Rwanda, Bosnia, um, whether it be uh, in Burma right now with the Rohingya. There are acts that take place that lead up and, let it, and give us an idea of what is to come. And if those acts are not confronted, if those people who eschew hate, I shouldn't say eschew, those people who, uh, who support hate, who promote hate, uh, who promote violence, if those people are not, um, if they are not rebuked, if they are not uh, dealt with, if it is not clear that that type of, that the rhetoric that leads up to the action, that it is not it is not going to be um, tolerated, then we end up with the genocides that we've seen in Rwanda, in Bosnia, in Burma, that is going on right now. So the truth is, if the phrase anti-African-American or anti-black or anti-Muslim were to be leveled against any individual or, for that matter, uh, an institution, it really, at this point, it does not carry the same type of weight as anti-Semitic or even homophobic. As a matter of fact, the, the inverse of anti-black, which would be white supremacists, uh, and we've seen what happens when African Americans use that to classify people who demonstrate anti-black or anti-African American behavior. These people themselves become targets. Or if they talk about the conditions, whether they be systemic or institutional, they become targets. So from Colin Kaepernick to Jamel Hill, we see the same type of approach or the same type of story being, being played out or the same type of responses are being given when elements of America are put on blast, we see the same response from the same, the same people. So Colin took a knee during the national anthem as a way to bring awareness to the number of African Americans being killed with impunity, might I add, by police in the United States. Now, of course, this also means that he was also standing or kneeling as a protest against police brutality or the over-policing of communities of color. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second and ask you, do you consider this to be a human problem or a black problem or an African-American problem? Is it a human problem or is it a black problem? Now, how you think about that problem it says a lot as to whether or not we are committed to principles or we're committed to the uh, vestiges of personality. If we're committed to the actual principles of what we're supposed to stand for as a nation, or are we more concerned about what we can get as individuals, or we're more concerned about maintaining the particular uh, status quo as it is. So, because we're not, for the most part, a principled, a principled nation, 
or should I say there is still a very vocal segment of our country whose principles are not aligned with what the United States itself says it stands for. Principles like egalitarianism and liberty, to name two of them. That vocal section is still stuck in its own privilege. So, I'll tell you what, let, let me demonstrate this. I'm going to tell you a, a story really quickly. So, Mary Turner, in 1918, eight months pregnant, mobs lynched Mary Turner on May 17, 1918, in Lowndes County, Georgia, because she vowed to have those responsible for killing her husband arrested. Now, her husband was arrested in connection with the shooting and killing of Hampton Smith, a white farmer for whom the couple had worked and wounding his wife. Sidney Johnson, a black man, apparently killed Smith because he was tired of the farmer's abuse. Now, unable to find Johnson, the killers lynched eight other blacks, including Hayes Turner and his wife Mary. The mob hanged Mary by her feet poured gasoline and oil on her, and set her on fire. One white man sliced open Mrs. Turner's stomach, and her baby tumbled to the ground with a, with a cry, and the mob stomped the baby to death, meanwhile spraying bullets into Mary Turner. Now, if you want to see the full caption of this, there, uh, there are a few different places you can, you can go, but one is to look at the NAACP, 30 Years of Lynching in the U.S., from 1889 to 1918. Now, when you think about the response to African Americans seeking justice, seeking justice, seeking redress when they have been treated wrongly in the past, and we see it with such vicious, such a vicious response, a response that most of us would look at it as being, as being inhuman, to lynch a pregnant woman and to cut her baby from her womb. That, that is, that is the, 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 the definition of evil, of wickedness. Now, tone it down a bit. And you look at Colin Kaepernick, somebody who knelt to protest what he felt was the unjust treatment of communities of color, of African-American communities. They're over-policing, being shot and killed in the street, officers being acquitted for those crimes time and time again. And his remuneration, his the response to him is that he is now unemployed. Now, we know it's a lot different to be an unemployed millionaire than it is to be an unemployed, you know, fry cook. But the point is, the principle remains the same. So we look at Jamel Hill, ESPN anchor. She suggested that Mr. Trump, that he was a white supremacist, to which he feigned indignation. Now, although he has been slow to denounce white supremacy, of those uh, in Charlottesville, and he seemed to look 
for ways to uh, establish an equivalency between alt-right, white supremacists, and the counter-protesters at Charlottesville. He took offense to having that label thrown at him. He took so much offense that he made the suggestion that Jamel Hill should not be employed, that ESPN should get rid of her. Now, fortunately, in this instance, her co-workers, her African-American co-workers, also, they came to her defense and, and they said, no, we're not going to be a part of, we're not going to be a part of this. But this is also from a president who, and I, I, I hate to, to give, I hate to give a, uh, an example and not be able to give the full example, but I may be able to come back to it later. But it was with regard to, I believe it was uh, some teens, some, some uh, young youth in uh, New York. Uh, it had something to do with Central Park. I think it was the Central Park Five or something along those lines. And who had been committed, who had been uh, accused of committing a crime, a, a heinous crime, for which they would later be exonerated. But he took the time to, uh, to take out a full-page ad asking or recommending, urging that they receive the death penalty. He offered no apology once they were exonerated. Now, he has done, and it's not just, it's not just him, but let's look at this uh, systemically. The history is when African Americans stand up and call for justice, they are met with deaf ears, if they are lucky. The worst case scenario has been they are met with violent, violent resistance. So whether physical or economic attack, both serve the same purpose. So once again, I'm asking you to think about this. Is this a human problem? Is this an American problem? Or is this a African-American problem? Where does, where does the problem lie? Who should be the one to, to pick it up? And I, wanna, I want to go back to, to this, because I, I don't want to just be you know, doom and gloom. That's not, the, that's not my, my point. I was at a rally with many others this past Saturday to protest the genocide that's taking place in Burma, to protest the atrocities that are taking place for, uh, against the uh, Rohingya, uh, the uh, Muslim indigenous uh, uh, people there. They are a minority. Their citizenship was taken 40 years ago. Now, I'm not Rohingya. Right? I'm not from Burma. But as I stood up and I looked out, what I did not see, I, did, I, I saw there was definitely there was diversity there. There was some diversity there. But it was not enough. It was not enough to really signal that we have gotten the message that we are all in the same boat. And this could also be, this could also be true for if you're talking about a, a Black Lives Matter protest 
or a immigration protest or something. Uh, well, that might, I'm, I'm gonna step back. That actually could be, that would probably draw a much more diverse crowd. Um, but the point is, if we're people of principle, if we are, if we uphold these principles of, of egalitarianism, if we uphold principles of liberty, if we uphold principles of human dignity, then any affront to, injust, to justice is going to be something that resonates with, uh, with, with us. We'll see these problems as what they are. They're not just American problems. These are human problems. And we live in America. We are American citizens. But these are human problems. And they're worthy of our attention. And those who bring them up should not be ostracized. They should not be cut down. So that's the history that we are that we are dealing with. That's the history that we're fighting. And those two two incidents which might seem innocuous to some, a few nooses that were found, two murders in a city of millions. But these speak to a bigger problem. And if we don't develop a zero tolerance, if we don't develop a zero tolerance, then it's going to, these things will fester. They will only get worse. And what we will find ourselves in will be something that we will look back and say that we could have avoided. So that's my, that's my spiel for the uh, for the first first portion of our show, of our broadcast, um, you know we're on every day. Uh, we'd like to hear from you. Go to our Facebook page, leave us a comment, leave us a question. If you disagree with me, feel free. We can definitely have civil civil uh, civil disagreement. You know, we all have different opinions, but I'm just sharing one perspective. So when we come back after the break, we're going to be joined by Sister Aisha Mustafa, the editor of the Muslim Journal. And we're looking forward to having some great conversation. You are listening to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq el We'll see you after the break. forest animals kids are coming to the forest and it's up to us to make their visit a good one sparrow have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year of course catchy i like it river how's the temperature it's a refreshing 52 degrees man i love it uh turtle he's not here yet man Uh, he's late every morning okay squirrel the forest has been preparing just for you to learn more about cool things to do in the forest visit discovertheforest.org brought to you by the u.s forest service and the ad council I knew I was stuck at this kid's house for the night, but those guys snuck up on me to try and pull the hand in a bowl of warm water trick. Well, that was enough for me. I went downstairs to sleep in the basement, even though it was pitch black. I left my sleeping bag upstairs, and that was a mistake, because it was freezing. I think it was probably the longest night of my life. To read more about the sleepover, check out Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Last Straw by Jeff Kenny. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov, brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. 
Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are listening to Radio Islam at WCEV 1450 AM. We broadcast every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, and we reach the world by streaming live at WCEV1450.com. Now, remember, you can also go to RadioIslam.com to check out guest bios, programming, previous shows, articles, and more. If you haven't already done so, Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as I just mentioned, at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. If you're on Facebook and you're listening, feel free to leave us a comment. Give us a question. Let us know what you're thinking about the discussion. Uh, We opened up, excuse me, we opened up our discussion tonight just kind kind of reflecting on a few news items that took place over the weekend. One was the, uh, was the murder of two uh, African-American men by, by a 20, 23-year-old uh, white man in Louisiana that the police are leaning towards, uh, they are classifying as a, uh, as a hate crime. They believe that it was uh, racially motivated. And also we talked a little bit about two nooses that were found in Brooklyn, well, one in Brooklyn and one in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. So, as I said, there's a lot that's been going on, and we, um, you know, we just have to, we just have to look at it and accept it and talk about it. But right now, we have a special guest with us that has joined us on the phone, uh, and we are really pleased to have her. And let me see if we can get her patched through. Assalamualaikum. Okay, I don't, I don't hear. Her. You there? I'm here. Assalamualaikum. Can you hear me? Like my salam. Yes, yes. Okay. Oh, well, like my salam. <laughs> yes, All right. Thank you so much. Well, you know what? I must give you a proper, a proper introduction. <laughs> so, for the for the sake of our listeners, uh, we have a, a dynamic, uh, dynamic guest in uh, Sister Aisha. So, Aisha Mustafa has been the editor of the Muslim Journal weekly newspaper since January of 1989. She's a graduate of Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, with a BA degree and double major in psychology and political science. She has a master's degree in journalism from Columbia College, Columbia College of Chicago, Illinois, and she's the third woman editor of the 42-plus-year-old newspaper and its longest-tenured editor. Aisha is a Muslim convert and comes from a, Muslim, from a Mississippi family of civil rights activists of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. era. She joined the community of Muslims affiliated with Imam W. Dean Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, 
and mentor to Malcolm X in late 1974 through the Atlanta, Georgia Muslim community. She moved to Chicago in mid-1975 and worked throughout the Muslim community offices prior to becoming Muslim Journal editor. Most significant among those years was her work with the prison dawah, or Islamic teachings, to the incarcerated populations, prison services being part of her concentration as an undergraduate. She worked in the administrative offices of Muhammad Mosque No. 2 and Sister Clara Muhammad School of Chicago and the Muslim Women Development Class, as well as a brief period at the historic Muhammad Speaks plant on Federal Street. In 1978, she was named lead instructress for the Muslim sisters trained by Imam W.D. Muhammad to teach al-Islam and its formation and information of the Women's Group Committee to enhance the role of women in society, which the initials were C-E-R-W-I-S. Her initial job in Chicago was as a transcriber of Imam Muhammad's lectures that were used to create the Imams, the Imams kits that trained former Nation of Islam ministers and captains for the role of Imams, a time which she calls her greatest learning experience. Aisha also has traveled as part of delegations led by Imam W. Dean Muhammad, several times going to Saudi Arabia, to Riyadh, Jeddah, and Mecca, to Jerusalem and the West Bank. Most notable during one trip was the meeting between Imam Muhammad and Palestinian President Yasser Arafat. She was a presenter at the three-day international media conference hosted by the Focolare Movement's Net One Media Group held in Rome, Italy in 2004 with 800 participants from over 20 countries. She made Hajj to Mecca in 1977 with the first and then largest Muslim American group led on Hajj by Imam W. Dean Muhammad. She has made Umrah, the lesser Hajj, several times. Aisha was host of one of the seven daily one-hour talk radio shows every Friday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. for the illustrious Radio Islam, continuously live-streamed at www.wcev1450.com, produced by Sound Vision. Uh, in the Chicago area, until she moved to Jackson, Mississippi in 2011, she was an advisory member of the Lutheran College Christian Muslim Peace Engagement in Chicago with Dr. Harold Vogelar and a frequent speaker in interfaith settings and to school college audiences. Since moving to Jackson, she has worked as editor of the Mississippi Link weekly newspaper, now one of its contributing writers. In 2015, she joined the Tougaloo College uh, mass communication staff as an assistant professor after two years as an adjunct professor. She continues to serve as editor of the Muslim Journal Weekly newspaper. Aisha was named the Muslim Woman of the Year by the community of Imam W. D. Muhammad in 1994. A street in New Medina, Mississippi, has been named in her honor at New Medina's 25th annual retreat of 2011. She is the mother of four, grandmother of five, and an advocate for foster parenting. Thank you so much for joining us, Sister Aisha. Well, I, I feel like I'm coming home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Yes, yes, sir. I enjoyed uh, working with Radio Islam the years that I was there with this uh, inaugural um, broadcast. It, it was really a, a real treat. Yes, and, and it's great to have you back, especially considering, uh, as you said, being one of the founding hosts uh, to, to get this train to moving. Uh, so we appreciate, we're indebted to the work that you and, and, and those others who have made, uh, who have made this possible. So thank you so much. Thank you. 
So we, uh, while we have you here, um, there's a lot going on. Uh, and as the, as the editor, as, as an activist, um, we are really, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your perspective on uh, particular. Uh, it was mentioned in the news uh, segment at the opening of the show how the police in St. Louis have been heard saying, whose streets are streets? You know, they're chanting this uh, mm. in the face of protesters who are, who are demonstrating. Where exactly are we at now? Uh, if if we're not careful, we're going to digress in our in our historical standing, historical perspective. And I, I first want to say we're not anti-police. We're not anti-cop. We know they are very honorable men and women serving as police officers on some very dangerous streets in our country. So we're not anti-police. Right. However, we must acknowledge the trends that we are seeing almost on an epidemic level um, of what's happening uh, to, to turn us back in time. You know, there was a time when African-Americans were lynched in this country, and not much was done about it. It was in, only in recent years that the U.S. Congress acknowledged on the records that th at least 3,000 African-Americans were lynched in this country, and that's the ones they could count. Right. So uh, with, with our present pol political climate, we see this reemergence of some very disturbing trends. And we see it especially on, on the streets uh, with our police officers. Uh, I, perhaps it's, and I'm not saying that it's all coming from white officers. Some of it is, is uh, also involved African-American officers. Mm -hmm. I made one, after talking to you, I made a list today, and I just want to read if, if I may. Go, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Ten that stuck out to me. The one that we're looking at now in St. Louis is uh, Anthony Lamar. Right. Anthony Lamar was shot dead by a police officer in 2011. It's just making um, uh, the, the news because uh, 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 the person, the officer, was acquitted. But right. that was the quietest one. That was back in 2011. Anthony Lamar was shot dead in St. Louis. And Officer Jason Stock Stockley was heard on his uh, his own dash cam saying, "Going to kill this nigga." Right. And then within the uh, 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 camera shot, he's he's implying he's evidently doing something in the car. In in the uh, prosecutors are saying that he was trying to um, plant a gun, a gun which was found in the car that only had the DNA of the officer. No DNA of, the, of uh, Anthony Lamar was on the gun. Mm -hmm. They said it's Lamar's gun. That's 2011, and that's the uh, protest we see today. Uh, but before then, we have to remember, a lot of this kicked off with Trayvon Martin right. in 2012, where you had a, a neighborhood watchman, Zimmerman, uh, shoot this teenager just because he, was in, he didn't appear to fit in in that neighborhood. His attire was suspicious. That's 2000, February. 2014, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, shot by a police officer, uh, was, began as a, a report of a petty theft that did not warrant a life, uh, a, a death sentence. But Michael Brown is shot dead by an officer who says Michael Brown is on his knees, but he's getting ready to charge him. 
charge at him as in a body charge. Mm-hmm. 2015, you have Laquan McDaniels in Chicago shot 16 times. Laquan is a teenager, big for his age, and he's walking erratically in the street with a knife. There are officers that are following him. He's not charging at anybody. And one officer pulls up around all the other ones, pulls up on Laquan McDonald and empties into him 16 shots. Then they confiscate all the cameras on the street that showed the shooting. Uh, So it it doesn't uh, hit the um, media until a freelancer sued through the Freedom of Information Act to get the cameras the camera footage that the officers had confiscated from the various businesses around that area. Um, of course, um, 16 shots in the one person does sound excessive of a person with a knife, and the knife wasn't even turned towards that person. Right. December 2014, um, Eric Garner, accused of selling loose cigarettes on the street, is put in a chokehold and, and his case is referred to as the case of I Can't Breathe. Right. He's killed because of a suspicion of selling loose cigarettes uh, by police officers. April 2015, Freddie Gray, they call it the Rough Ride of Baltimore. He's thrown in the back of a paddy wagon, uh, a police wagon, uh, to be taken to jail. Um, but... They, they had a saying in Baltimore that he was given a rough ride. This was in the first case where uh, uh, people who were being transported to jail said the officers would put them in the back of the police wagon without restraints, without seatbelt, and then the driver would be so erratic until they would be uh, uh, slammed through through the back of the uh, wagon. Mm. Freddie Gray ended up with a broken neck. 2000. 15 again in April in North Charleston, North Charleston, South Carolina. Walton Scott is shot in the back when he runs from a traffic stop. It appears that the officer who shot him in the back uh, was planting um, evidence of a gun nearby him. But it, what is perfectly clear is Walter Scott was running away, and he was shot in the back. July 2015, Sandra Bland, we can't forget Sandra, and out of her case came the the slogan, Say My Name. Uh, This was a traffic stop, and even though she was taken to jail alive, she died while she was in custody. The implication was that she committed suicide, but none of the evidence uh, of what she was doing, she had a new job, she was very uh, upbeat about her new job, implied that she would kill herself. Uh, in custody over those couple of days. And then July 2016, we have Philando Castillo, who was shot by a traffic cop while his girlfriend recorded live streaming the stop and what took place when the officer opened fire when Philando was reaching for his papers to show that he had uh, a carry, uh, a right to carry a permit. And that's 10. There are others. That's just 10 that just jumps off off of the uh, news pages at us. Right. Um, and and it's a pattern. There is a pattern. And all of these are not just coincidental. Now, is it all ra- racist? Um, Freddie Gray, the officers involved in the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, were African-American. But what we can point to 
it's the type of training or the lack of training or the lack of sensitivity training that our officers are going through. And we also like to, we wonder, and it needs to be checked into, how many of these officers have been brought back from um, um, serving in the military in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, and in, in, uh, urban warfare, and then they put back on the streets in the U.S. without being um, debriefed. Uh, retrain that the, the, the people, the citizens on the streets of the U.S. are not the enemy. Right. And, and you know, we're citizens too. So th- that's just some of the um, climate that we're in right now. Well, I appreciate so much you mentioning some of those cases, and we know that there are many more. Um, I want to ask, do you feel like, I mean, in light of all of that, number one, as you mentioned, this is a case that that happened that in, uh, in 2011 uh, and would not have been responded to or the response came because of the acquittal. Are we seeing a, a, a patience uh, where folks are waiting for what they feel like, what they're waiting for justice, they're letting the system do its work only to continue to be put back in the same position of being denied justice? And what is, what type of of effect do you think long term? I mean, well, it, it's been going on for a long time, but where does that go? Is that something that can, can that can continue? It, it, it shouldn't continue, and it definitely can't continue without being uh, confronted, because what we're doing is having a, a deterioration in the social fabric, in the social order. We're having a deterioration between citizens and authority. You know, officer friendly is not looked upon as officer friendly anymore. You know, we used to rely on the police. The police was all of our protection. We went to them when we couldn't uh, uh, feel safe in our own homes or in our own neighborhoods. We, we relied on the police. But there's a deterioration uh, in that relationship, which means that the society is in, in jeopardy of, being, uh, of a breakdown. And, and even before that, it, it I don't, no, if you remember Rodney King. Oh yes. Uh, Rodney King was really like the uh, poster child of, of the breakdown between the general public and the police, and more specifically, the African Americans and the police. Mm-hmm. Um, Rodney King. That was in 1991, where Rodney King was beaten. And, the, and the, what made these all of these cases outstanding is that they are caught on video. Rodney King was a time when it wasn't uh, iPhones or uh, uh, Android phones that, that people had in their hands, but someone was actually on their balcony and saw the officers pull Rodney King over in Los Angeles, and he was literally beaten like a beast. Yes. And it was caught on camera. I mean, and they were laughing, they were joking, even on their uh, going back to the uh, station. Oh, it was just ridiculous what the officers were doing. And uh, Rodney King was beaten horrendously, even though he was drunk. It did not require the beating that they gave him that was caught on camera. And then that was played over and over and over and over until when the officers who beat Rodney King were found not guilty 
a major riot broke out. Right. And it was one of the most unusual riots I had seen because there were people out there riding, uh, uh, riding the King uh, officers. When those officers were exonerated, mm-hmm. there were people out there in, in suits. There were women out there in professional clothes. It wasn't just the, the street people who were riding. Everyone took to the street because they could not believe that you could look at that tape and then exonerate these officers. But what the people in Los Angeles would tell you is that's just the one they caught on tape. Right. This is the one you caught on tape. So we have to uh, be careful in terms of how we allow our government to train and provide with weapons our police officers. Let now we have the thing where the government is actually giving military gear and equipment to local police officers. The yeah, thing about a, um, a lot of that is coming under, I think, what was it, the Brady Bill, or um, I think that. Let, let me let me ask you this, and this is kind of a two-part question I pose to the listening audience: Is this a because I, I talked about some of those? Uh, the 3,000 murders. I talked about the story of, um, uh, who was it, Mary um, Smith. Um, was it Mary Smith? No, Mary Turner. I'm sorry. I talked about Mary Turner. Um, mm-hmm. And I asked, what I'm asking for everybody to think about, is this a African-American problem or is this a human problem? And second, I, I would like for you to uh, respond to is since this type of, uh, since this is, we seem to be like in a loop, you know, even going back to mm-hmm. Rodney King, where we see transgression, we see uh, great violence or death inflicted upon um, African Americans with the same result, acquittal after acquittal. When will there be a, a actual political, a political response? Will, will this angst, will this agitation translate into a uh, a movement at the polls it 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 has to uh, because the the alternative is unthinkable to the mere fact that we will actually end up being a police state we will be militarizing our police and and um minority communities not only african-american communities but latino communities as we see now mm-hmm. uh and Everyone of of a minority status would be at the mercy of a political, uh, a militarized police state. And unfortunately, right now, the climate of our uh, government uh, feeds into that concept. Uh, so, while it's, it's what we have to respond to politically, when it, when we uh, definitely have to go to the polls, you know, we talk about President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, uh, being voted into office, and people say, well, half the country voted him into the office. No, it didn't. Half the country didn't even show up to the polls. Right. Half the country stayed at home. So 50% of the country went to the polls, and half of that 50%, uh, 25% of the country, and uh, just maybe a little bit under 25%, because Hillary did get the majority of the uh, popular vote, voted our president into office. So if we don't show up, then we can expect more of the same. But now that it has happened that we have a president who 
who leans towards preferred treatment to the white order versus the uh, uh, being uh, responsive or reactive to the minorities in our society, then we have to do more than just go to the polls. We have to uh, we have to uh, re-engage ourselves in community organizing. We can't depend on just the, the government coming to our aid for the next four years, and a lot can happen in four years. Yes. So we have to do more community organizing as well as when, when it's time to vote, we have to vote. And we don't have to revisit, I don't think, uh, what the price that was paid for minorities to vote in this country. Remember, we didn't get a bill of rights to vote until 1965. Right. And before then, my father was one of those African-American men who would be standing in line to vote, and they would ask him how many beans in the jar, mm. how many bubbles can come out of one bar of soap. And then they were humiliated and turned away from voting. People died trying to register people to vote here in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, didn't just go to jail, didn't just get beat across the head. That happened, too. But people died. Goodman, Cheney, and Swanner were all in their 20s, an African-American, a Caucasian, and a Jewish Freedom Ride participants who were here to help people, African-Americans, register to vote, and they were murdered. Yeah. And these are the same people that had the same uh, uh, allegiance as the Nazis who just recently thought that it was okay for them to come out and have a mass uh, demonstration of their own. That, that that says so much, uh, and I appreciate you bringing up the f- that, you know, the Voting Rights Act, you know, we're talking about 1965, which is not a long time ago at all. But, not a long time ago. But to look at the impact, uh, because prior to 1965, well, when, it, when the uh, Voting Rights Act took place, it says there were six African-American members of the U.S. House of Representatives, no blacks in the U.S. Senate. But by 1971, there were 13 members of the House and one black member of the Senate. So you talk about giving people, and of course, there was a lot of energy behind us going to the polls at that time, which has, in in some instances, it has dissipated. But we see the impact of us, uh, of folks using their their right to be a part of the political process. Uh, let me ask you one more question because we, we're down to like about two minutes. Uh, so I hate to put you under the uh, under the clock, but I want to ask you, what what role do you think the media um, has to play as far as in, in how they're reporting these instances? Because we're norm, you know, uh, it's normally a criminalize the victim uh, first type of uh, scenario. Uh. It's with great prayer that we hope that the media has learned this lesson uh, because when we, um, in the last presidential election, they dropped the ball in holding all the candidates to the same um, level of credibility. Uh, Part of it they did jokingly, uh, assuming that uh, Donald Trump as a candidate was not a viable candidate and would not win, so they just gave him airtime after airtime. And even as uh, Mr. Trump said himself, it increased their ratings because people were just drawn to the 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 uh, the, the show and in the in the um, the high pitch of, of the debates that there wasn't about anything. 
And he said, Donald Trump said himself, I haven't spent any money. I haven't bought any ads, and I got all this free airtime. Mm-hmm. So that's the media where they drop the ball on something as serious as the election of the president of the United States. And I think they're doing some soul searching after that. Well, I, I hope mm-hmm. so. <clears throat> I certainly hope, hope so. so um, yeah, because uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's said you can't have a, a democratic free society without an independent media, but it has to be a media with substance. Yes, absolutely. I want to thank you so much for joining us and, um, I hope that we can get you on again and, and maybe get you on for the whole for the whole uh, program. <laughs> but, uh, let, me, let me just ask you, your audience to do one thing. Look up the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. 1965 was an interesting year. Mm-hmm. That's the year when the quotas for who would be let into this country was changed. Yes. And more people of color were allowed in. Uh, so when Donald Trump says he wants to make America great again, in some of his talks, he's referred to the year 1965. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And folks can follow um, uh, Sister Aisha on uh, uh, at Muslim, Journal Muslim at, at Journal Muslim on Twitter, and also uh, what's your what's your Twitter handle? At Aisha K Mustafa. Okay. All right. We're down to a minute. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, we pray for your continued success and the success of the uh, Muslim Journal. It's one of our prized institutions. Uh, today, our engineer at WCEV has been Ramon. Our engineer in studio is the masterful Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamin. Uh, the words are the uh, the words of the host and the guests are their views and not necessarily the views of Sound Vision. Um, so, uh, we thank you all for joining us. We look forward to talking to you tomorrow with Cook County State's Attorney Kimberly Fox. Have a great evening. I leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.